Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. What a joy it is to be back with you this week as we celebrate the truth, and it is the truth, that the best of our journey remains in front of us. As a younger version of myself, one of the great things that I struggled with as a speaker is would the message I shared work outside of my own backyard. Yeah, I get that I worked with Girl Scouts in St. Louis County. Yes, I understood that it might work effectively with a few Rotarians just north of my house, but would it work as far away as one state? Or what about three states? What about when we started getting calls to travel not only around the country, but around the entire world? And what I have learned in all of these meetings, more than 2,000 speaking events, 48 states, I think a couple dozen countries, is that we are far more alike than we frequently recognize, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of where we choose to worship, regardless of how we choose even to vote. I know we're going to get really divisive in this one, even to vote, that we are far more alike than we frequently recognize. This podcast today will celebrate the gift, and it is a gift open to each of us, of unity, of reconciliation, of coming together as one. So where did the podcast come from? Where did my guests come from? Well, it begins with a note that I received from my friend, Bob Weiss. He says, John, I don't know if you even will get this, but I think you recognize right now that Minneapolis is on fire. You know what that means. And then he goes on to say, John, my friend, his name is Mike Max, is a sports recorder here in Minneapolis. Check out his videos and uh, you'll know more about how he covered the riots. He understands his relationships with the people during the riots and was instrumental in calming the fire. John, quickly get him on your podcast. You will value every moment of time that he spends with you. You will learn a ton from him. So I took Bob Weiss's advice. I researched Mike Max. I learned about his work. And I was wildly inspired about four days of reporting that he did in the midst of riots and protests and conversations and sadness and anger that erupted in Minneapolis-St. Paul after the death, after the murder of George Floyd. During this podcast, you're going to meet a gentleman named Mike Max. You're going to meet a guy who became a reporter and was so in the trenches, so in the spotlight that he was the number one trending person on Twitter for several days. Yes, even larger somehow than the Kardashians because the work he did then and does still matters. One of the most amazing experiences you're gonna hear is as some protesters are being arrested, a conversation that was had between a police officer and someone that he was arresting what they originally thought were boundaries that divided them ended up being a conversation that would indeed unite them nationally and internationally and in your backyard and in your places of work and in your families i think this is a conversation my friends that we need to have and today we're going to have it with a gentleman named mike max you're going to learn the story about a kid that grew up in a small town in southern minnesota became a successful broadcaster in minneapolis st paul And then after the death of George Floyd, went on to do by far, I think, his most important, his most vital work. He's going to share some of those stories with you today. You are about to listen into a powerful story about controlling what you can, letting go of the things that you cannot, coming together as one family, having dialogue, having dialogue, healing, and then recognizing that together our best days, and that word is so important, together, our best days remain in front of us. His name is Mike Max. You may not have heard of Mike if you uh, do not live in Minnesota, but I think after this podcast, you won't forget him. So my friends, my encouragement right now is to buckle up, get ready for a wild ride, open up a journal, uh, take some notes, and get ready to live into the truth that the best of your journey and our collective journey remains in front of us. Mike Max, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thank you for having me today, John. 
Well, Mike, I'm aware of the great work you do. And I know a whole lot of friends in Minnesota and Minneapolis who know you very well, who follow your work. Our audience, though, includes folks in St. Louis, not St. Louis, Minnesota, but St. Louis, Missouri, and around the United States, and indeed around the world. So for the folks who may not live right in your backyard, who may not know about the work you do, give us a snapshot of who you are and what the work you do today is. Well, I, I am Minnesota through and through, and uh, some would say I even have a Minnesota accent if you pick up on a doofda and uh, old golly once in a while throughout this. But I grew up in a small town of Minnesota, 2,000 people. Uh, my graduating class was 57 kids. I went to college uh, at a small private school in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hamlin University. Uh, participated in sports in high school and college. Uh, got an internship at the CBS affiliate, WCCO-TV. As a junior in college in 1986, and in 2020, I'm still working for CBS slash WCCO. I work at Radio NTV. Uh, I started as a producer there uh, through the, in, in a lot of hard knocks early on in, the, in those early 20s. Uh, survived it, um, stayed with it, uh, eventually became a reporter, eventually became a host, and now I'm the sports director at WCCO TV. And then I host the radio show every night on WCCO Radio from 6.30 to 9. Generally speaking, it's a sports show, but I am allowed to veer from there depending on what's going on. And I do it a lot of different time slots throughout uh, the course of the year. So we'll talk politics. We'll talk uh, uh, racial divide and everything else, depending on the day and mm -hmm. the time and, 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 and what's, uh, what's pertinent to Minnesota right now. And obviously, there's a lot of things in Minnesota that are pertinent. We've lost sports uh, until it comes back in the form of baseball here soon. Uh, so all of us have been challenged uh, as sports reporters and sports broadcasters to go, okay, A, I got to make myself valuable to my company. <laughs> you know, I got to show there's some worth here even when there's not sports. And, and, and B, it, it allows you to leave your comfort zone. And John, I know you speak a lot about this. Uh, it allows you to leave your comfort zone and in so doing, find out a whole lot more about yourself and self-discovery. And I think that's what's happened to me and others uh, over the last several months here. You grew quickly to international fame, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that here shortly. But I've always thought, Mike, that it's, it's like the foundation of your past that prepares you for the moments yes. that you don't even know are coming. Yes. And so growing up in this small town, this small graduating class, can you just talk about some of the examples of leadership, whether it's a parent, a pastor, a coach, a rabbi, a friend? Who were some of the folks that guided you forward and, and, and formed the man that you would eventually become? You just mentioned many of them. Uh, small town, um, never saw an African-American until I was in college, in fact. So that gives you an idea of Southern Minnesota farming community. Uh, but I was inspired. My parents were, were incredibly active in the community that I grew up in. My dad was at one time a high school teacher and coach. Uh, he got out of that before I was in school and became a financial planner for Ameriprise uh, for 30-some years. My mom was a school nurse. They were active in everything. My dad was on the city council, the school board, the church board, uh, very active in our church. And in a small town, those are foundation pieces. So we went to church every Sunday. We sang in the choir. Uh, in a small town, you did just about everything. Your, your foundation is set before your found, you even know what your foundation is. And, and by having those role models around, my parents, those teachers and coaches, and by extension, then the friends that I chose, and, and the parents, my parents' friends, I was constantly, didn't realize at the time because I thought this is the way everybody's raised, but I was constantly being fed positive role models, positive messages, do the right thing. Uh, sometimes it would wear you out. Uh, but at the end of the day, that served me very well going forward because I had all these people. And I, I'm just so incredibly thankful because I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose what town I grew up in. I just got lucky. And, and the longer I live, the luckier I realize that I got because these people, faith-based, fundamentally based about, you know, hard work is the key to success. All those things that they ingrained in me every day have served me for the rest of my life. And, and, and John, I, I, you're so right on about that. There, there's so much, and, and it's so critical as we raise our kids that they get that foundation because once they get beyond 18, this world can be a tough place and it's, it's tough for all of us. But if you don't have some structure or some belief in yourself or some confidence that you can get through the tough times, you're going to really have a tough time. And that's what I got out of going up in a small town. And not that you can't get that anywhere. You can. You, you play sports all the way through. I think you play two or three sports, even in college. When did you realize that, you know what, the NBA, Major League Baseball, <laughs> they may not be calling you. You may not be able to put on a uniform, but at least you can talk about those who do. When did you realize that, speaking and commentary about about sports what you're calling in life 
one of the great things about sports is it's a great meritocracy. It's, it, it is. Either you can or you can't. And everybody's going to get cut. It's just a question of when. Everybody's going to leave the game. It's just a question of when. And I can remember going through that process, as you mentioned. You know, in the elementary school, the end, you're not sure if you're going to do the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, all three at the same time. You haven't decided yet. By the time I got to be a sophomore in high school, I remember going, boy, I just hope I can be good enough to play college somewhere that someone would want me in their program at every, any level. And uh, I was a gym rat. I was the kind of guy that I, I, I wasn't that interested in working, meaning uh, the jobs that my mom and dad wanted me to do, cutting the grass and all that stuff. But I could go hang out at the gym, shoot baskets, play baseball all day. Uh, I love that process. I love the process of hard work and trying to get better. Uh, but as you as you get older, uh, and meaning into high school, you, you don't have to look far to realize what your shortcomings are, too. You know, for me, it was speed and quickness. So I was able to get recruited by Division three schools. That, that's where I went to. And when I got there, it was another step and another humbling experience because you go, boy, these guys are even quicker than what I played against in high school. And so there's a natural evolution uh, to that. And I think one of the things that you have to do uh, when you participate in sports in high school and small college, et cetera, is be thankful for what you did get to do because there's so many things that you can't control no matter how hard you work uh, that are talent-based. And you have to be thankful that you got the experience to compete and what you got to learn from that. There's a plan there. And this is my faith-based part of me. There's a plan there. You know, I was supposed to play sports, but not because I was supposed to be a professional athlete because of what it would teach me, the respect that ultimately I have for the game. So Mike, when did you discover then if, if it wasn't sports, then it was broadcasting? I was a junior in college and I was majoring in business and psychology. And I was going to get a double major and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I had an elective class, went to a liberal arts uh, college in Hamlin University and decided to take a class on video production. So I took this class on video production and, and there it was, the life changer, because the, the professor, Matthew Cantor, uh, said, you seem to like this. And I did. There was a natural passion for it that I didn't know that I had. She said, you should try to get an internship uh, in this uh, because you seem to uh, connect with that. And I, I didn't even know internships existed. Uh, so I banged on every door I could, every TV station in town, all the affiliates and whatnot. And the only one that let me in was WCCO TV, the CBS. And I've been with them. I've been with them or the radio station or both for, for 34 years. So that, that's making a long story very short. But it was that one class that changed my life. I'm a big believer that you, you keep your eyes open and your ears open because you don't know when something's going to be presented to you that's a gift. And that was the gift to me. Well, man, I, I just read yesterday that we now switch industries five times over yeah. the professional career. Industries, not jobs. It's not you jumping, jumping from CBS to Fox and back. Yeah. Industries. You've been with the same industry now since college. Uh, what is it about where you currently are and the work that you're currently doing that keeps you engaged in the work? You know, I love the process. I love the process of getting up every day and... Um, Case in point for me, I have a three-minute sportscast at six o'clock, a three-minute sportscast at ten o'clock, and a two-and-a-half-hour radio show. So I have to figure out how to fill that with what I hope is quality. I, what I really need is for John to look at and watch and see the commercial that teases ahead to sports and say, "Okay, I'm going to stick around for that." And then I got to get you to watch for three minutes until the next commercial. To me, the fun, the part of the game that I love, is that process of trying to get it ready and then executing it as the actual game. But I love practice and I love the process. And that's why I can continue to do this in the same industry because I'm forever challenged, almost like a golfer, uh, that, that I think we can do it better today than we did it yesterday. I think there's a new way of doing this. Uh, that's never left me. I'm 55 years old. That's never left me. I don't know if it ever will. Uh, but it's that insatiable appetite because you, you, you constantly believe, and again, some of this is faith-based, that the best is yet to come. Brother, you're stealing lines. You're stealing lines from my book and from my presentations. But I'll, I'll let you borrow it during this podcast. But the best is indeed yet to come, and yet we face profound adversity along the way toward it. You heard the name George Floyd when for the first time? So it was uh, Memorial Day uh, is when it occurred. That's when his life was taken from him. Uh, we traveled back that day, uh, my family and I, and uh, I don't even know if that was reported on the news that night. Yeah. Next morning, I was listening to our radio station, WCCO, and I heard them say uh, it was a national 
uh, uh, national newscast and, and, and they talked about a police officer killing an African-American man in South Minneapolis. And as soon as I heard that, I said, oh my God, oh no, w what could be next? Is there, is there any reasonable explanation for this? Because not based on what I just heard there, I had no idea what was going to grow. But of course, there's a history here. We, we've had issues before. So this has been a powder cake for a long time. And, and when this happened and, and they gave people reason and the video, I didn't know the video existed at that time. I heard that they were looking at some video of it. I didn't realize what it was going to show. And, and when that was released and when it, uh, when the public grasped it and realized what they saw, you, you just, you, you, your heart went into your stomach because you knew you knew it was going to be a tough time for us here. You just didn't know to what degree. And we certainly didn't know that it was the beginning of an international movement. On that day that you heard George's name really for the first time and saw that video for the first time, did you begin speaking about this on your radio program or, or not yet? came in stages. As a reporter, you, you, you do pause for a second because you go, wait, let, let's get some more information here. Uh, before we go off the deep end, because I, I, I'm not well versed enough in, in uh, uh, police force or how they take people down to know exactly what had transpired there. I knew he had died, but I didn't know if the cause of death was going to be uh, because of the knee to the neck. I, I didn't know that because, because uh, I thought, you know, let, let's let this play out for a minute because th that's an easy reaction, but let, let's see what happens next because I don't know if that was truly the cause of death or if we just made that leap uh, in logic, and it doesn't exist. When when people began to come out and, and they fired the officers, you said, okay, they then believe that this killed George Floyd. Uh, at least they do enough to fire all four officers. Uh, now, we're, I don't want to say we're in trouble, but uh, this city, something's going to happen here. I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, and that's when we started to speak about it. And And from my standpoint, because I've covered sports so long, um, I have been uh, heavily introduced to the African-American community in the city of Minneapolis, not just from the professional athletes that I cover, uh, but inside the city because of all the high school coverage that we've had and, and, and the players that have grown up here that go on to great things. So I've known that community very well. And I've done charity work for a group called the Hospitality House, which is on the north side of Minneapolis. And, and it's kind of a safe haven where kids can go after school. They have a gymnasium. They provide them with meals. Uh, they, they tutor them so they get after school help. Uh, so I've been really connected to that group. So I was able to kind of immediately pivot over to them, the people that I knew in that community, and let them explain to me what they were feeling and seeing. And that's how I started to cover this uh, initially. It, that was early on in the week that we'll never forget. Well, we will never forget it, in, in part because we have proof of what transpired, both of the evidence of beauty and also the horrific. And you were in the midst of, of all of it in some regards. When did it come to pass that a sports reporter becomes a person right there in the middle of the protests, the riots, the, the, the voice crying out for justice? You, you know, here's John, getting back to you know, a previous part of our conversation here, and this is why I believe, because things come together. You mentioned it, your foundation that you growing up, a lot of things come together that don't make any sense and make perfect sense. Uh, so as this week progressed, they, they looted Target. Uh, Target's national headquarters are in Minneapolis. And I didn't know if that was by design that it was, uh, that Target was seen as the epitome of corporate America. And we're going to show you that we can take down the best that Minnesota has. I don't think it was that well thought out, but they, they, they took over Target. They looted it. The police left because there was nothing to do. They, they took the Cub Foods, which is a chain of grocery stores. Uh, they looted that. And, and we watched that happen. And um, I got in touch with a couple of professional basketball players from here that, that I knew, and they were on the scene and watched it. And they gave me a report of that. And I thought, okay, that's about as bad as it's going to get. And, and that was on Wednesday night. Uh, on Thursday night, they, they, they burned down the third precinct. Uh, and that's when, that's when you knew that this was, this was above and beyond because you know, they burned down the symbol of a police station, which is in the middle, in, in this case, in South Minneapolis. Uh, these are the people that are supposed to protect them. And there was so much angst that they burned it down and it was almost a party around a bonfire as they did it and the police subdued and I don't know if you remember how it all went down but 
Um, uh, the mayor told them to retreat and get out of there. The mayor of Minneapolis, uh, President Trump got involved and tweeted, called the governor and said, when are you going to get the National Guard out here? Uh, the governor basically said, it's really not my call on this one. And Trump said, well, not your call. It's going to be my call because I'm sending them. And, and you had all these things come together. So I watched that. Uh, I went home that night after the news and, and our newscaster stayed on until about two in the morning. And I watched that and I felt this sense of God, I wish I hadn't left the newsroom. I wish I was there. I wish I could. I wish I could figure out why these people are doing what they're doing. I wish. I wish I. I could provide something because all we saw was the fire, right? We saw the the, the fire, and we knew there were no police officers. So I went to my my boss, Cherry Patey. She's the news director, and I and I, the next day, and I said, if you need me, if something comes up at a time, because the other part is here where it all comes together. There are no sports to cover. You know, so, so I was free and available because there were no twins games in our market. There were the Vikings aren't in play, all those things. So I was available to do whatever they needed. So on Friday night, um, everybody now is kind of the, the tension level has risen, but we're not sure what's going to happen next. And uh, at uh, 10 o'clock, as we're about to go on the news, they said they've taken over, uh, they're demonstrating down a freeway, I mean, main. Uh, artery here 35w and, and and they've shut it down and and it's over by uh, 35 in washington she said we got to get out there and i said can i go and she said absolutely get out there you know we just need somebody out there to tell us what's going on and then my life forever changed we went out there and it was it was it was the freeway next to a gas station that's familiar with not far from u.s bank stadium where the vikings play and and they had shut it down and they were protesting and they had a fire on the road and now you just start to observe and report and, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what it is that they're trying to accomplish from this. You, you didn't feel like your life was in danger. Uh, you did wonder, uh, you know, what's next? If you're going to do this, then what's going to come up next? We didn't see any police presence or anything. And they came up out of there, the protesters did. And fortunately for me, um, because, again, I had covered so many stories in Minneapolis and got to know so many people, there were people that were protesting that I had literally covered when they were in high school playing sports. And so I had a connection with some of the people there. And because of that, I had information from those same people. And, and I also had a layer of protection because there were people there that knew who I was either from TV or I knew them personally that were near me. So I didn't feel threatened like I think a lot of reporters maybe would have. And all of a sudden at once in mass, and we're doing kind of a play by play of this on TV, they, they, they all leave and you go, why are they all at once leaving? They said, they're gonna go down and burn the fourth precinct down now. And you go, oh boy. So we go back to the news station and uh, we've done all these live reports now. We go, well, we gotta go to the fourth precinct. We gotta be there. And, and now I'm in, right? I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm in the game, so to speak. And, and, and I wanna stay with it. So we go over to the fourth precinct uh, which is now we think going to be attacked. And as we as we're driving through, we see they burned down Wells Fargo Bank. They burned down a restaurant. There's fires everywhere. They're 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 ravaging an ATM. And, and we're driving through this, and you're going, is this Baghdad? What is this? You know, th th this is Minnesota. And we got back and behind, and we still haven't seen any police officers or law enforcement people. And and and, and, and there's such a tension between them and, the, and because of the way this went down, the demonstrate that you think that something could implode any time. And we got back behind the uh, the fourth precinct. And uh, as we're looking for and trying to figure out, because we can see the fires and we can see the people out here, I look behind me and I'll never forget it. I get chills when I say it, John. And, and coming down the road silently in step, it's like the cavalry just showed up. And it's the state patrol, the National Guard, the Minneapolis police force, the sheriff's office have all joined forces they're walking in and they're not they're not looking to incite they're not looking to confront but they're looking to defend and they are not going to let the fourth precinct burn we are not going to see a repeat of what happened before and i'll never forget that feeling that um because law enforcement took obviously a lot of heat for you know what happened early on but how good they were in that situation in diffusing it in not letting it grow, in, in uh, limiting the confrontations. Uh, and then we got tear gassed in the middle of that. And, and it came and it hit us hard. And, and so we're coughing and just trying to get through it. And, and you know, by accident, um, but I, I sat and watched these, these law enforcement officials um, 
I, I was so proud at the time uh, of Minnesota and just the way they reacted and, and, and they did it without making a bad situation worse. You never saw another death come out of this. You never saw major confrontation. Uh, contrary to what I think some media members would like to believe, because I was on the front lines for four days then, I, they did not target the media uh, ever. Uh, and I was right there next to them for a lot of this. Uh, I, I thought they were, they were so good at coming into a situation and not letting it get worse. They walked right up to the line and they basically said, you're not going to take the fourth precinct. And then the next night they had the eight o'clock curfew and they basically said, it's an eight o'clock curfew. We told you it's an eight o'clock curfew. We told you it's an eight o'clock curfew. And they just kept walking. And then they'd throw some tear gas, there were some rubber bullets, all those things. But I, I thought that they got shortchanged overall because I thought they were absolutely outstanding in, in walking right to the line and in, in saying, this isn't personal, but we're here to defend. And we are here for law and order and you will not continue this. And then every night was different. The next night, it was an eight o'clock curfew. And it was like, John, I'm telling you all day on that Saturday, it was a beautiful day. And you felt like you were going to the showdown, the old Western movies. You know, at high noon, there's gonna be a gunfight and everybody go board the doors. John, this city that I've grown up in, in terms of working in, everybody's boarding up their businesses. You know, they're, they're putting boards on the windows where I work. I can't even see out because we're right up against Nicollet Mall is, is kind of the main street in, in, in Minneapolis. Everybody's out putting boards up on their windows and you're going, this is crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And the eeriness that that created. And then there was all these false reports about people had come from other states. Yeah. These were Minnesotans that were really, really angry. And, and that night at eight o'clock, the curfew was set. And what really, I think, concerned me the most at that point was I, I had some information and, and we were able to vet it out that some of the business owners had said, you know, our, we don't have enough law enforcement to defend us. So therefore, we're going into our store and we're loading up. We got shotguns and we got six or seven guys and we're going to go in shifts. And I thought this has the potential to be so ugly. Yes. It never came to pass. But I thought that Saturday night, based on the information that I was getting, I thought, oh, my God, there's a chance we're going to have a bloodbath here like we've never seen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because law enforcement just slowly and methodically worked their way through it. And they, they really limited the number of incidents um, by doing that. And, and, and in the process, I got to understand what the demonstrators were so angry and upset about. And that was life-changing what i'm curious mike is how do you as a reporter your job is to report fact truth and and i'm biased in a perfect world it's an unbiased uh take on what is taking place you're live you're in the middle of it all sometimes you're behind police lines sometimes you're next to the police lines sometimes you're with the protesters sometimes you're near rioters sometimes your your live shot is being interrupted in very angry fashion how do you report on this without as effectively as possible without showing any bias it, it, it was it was almost um, instinctive in that you, you weren't thinking about who's right and who's wrong. You were thinking about what's the story here. And so literally you'd say, okay, you why are you down here protesting? And you put a microphone in front of them. How do you feel about this? And then you'd go get the counterpoint. And so you, you kind of worked off of that and said, let the people decide. There was a group of uh, Native Americans that, that had a, a reservation school uh, down there and they, um, uh, and they had lined up and shut the street off and they were going to defend that school because it was in the tough part of town. And, and why are you here? Well, why are you shutting off traffic? And, and they give their explanation. And what happened, John, was as you listen to the demonstrators, you go, oh my God, I didn't realize there, there's, there's a small group that are looters and rioters and have created great destruction. Most are peaceful and doing this for the right reasons and making a statement, but you have no intention of physical confrontation or anything else. And, and many of them I knew because it's, there were athletes that led in the community side, so personal relationships with a lot of these guys. But what was amazing to me was as long as I knew these guys, I never realized what was festering right underneath the surface, this police brutality. And as they began to tell me their stories one by one, Every one of them had a story about being pulled over, 
I was driving too nice a car and all of a sudden I had a gun to my head. I was in the suburbs and they said, what are you doing here? And they pulled me over and said, what are you? And, and, but it wasn't just what they were saying. It was how they were saying it. Their, their eyes were lighting up. They were getting emotional about this. These were people I've known for years. They're telling their story to me. I'm, it, it's going, oh my God, I've never had that happen to me in my life. And if anybody would have ever done that to me, I'd have been right in the mayor's office the next day. But you don't feel like you can do that because you feel like you're going to pay a bigger price if you try to fight them. And this is your first chance to say, this is what we're talking about. And then on the other side, the police officers, there's, there's, sure, there's some bad ones and there's some bad law enforcement, but the vast majority were just, they just want law and order. And at the end of it, on the Sunday night, as it was starting to come to its conclusion, um, the, the, maybe the piece that we did that got the most recognition was at a gas station, they, they had arrested 150 demonstrators and they were processing them. It took a long time for them to process them and bring them to jail. And so they, everybody was just standing there. It was a beautiful night. And the officers and the demonstrators started to talk and they started to connect and they started to talk about their families and they started to talk about their lives. And I'm just sitting there observing this. And I'm looking at this going, my God, the difference between the person in the handcuffs and the person with the gun next to him is about this much. Yeah. Everybody kind of wants the same thing. And they're not even mad at each other. They're just sharing their lives with each other. And you say, we can't be that far apart if we can get this close in this setting. That never would have happened, though, had they not had, not by design, but this extraordinary amount of time together where eventually like I believe all of us do, you can find common ground and connect and to see that, that, that the essence of humanity evolve in front of our eyes. You know, the, 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 the law enforcement and the demonstrators come together as well. It was, it was, it was so powerful that it, it's probably changed me for the rest of my life. So I did, as you might imagine, in preparing for today's conversation, an awful lot of recon on not only your sports stories from the past and the present, but on your reporting over those four days. And of all the work that you did, and it was intense, uh, the, the scene at the mobile gas station in Minnesota with those officers lined up on the left and the protesters lined up just to the right, and they're all in cuffs, it, what seems what outwardly an ugly, tragic situation, as you bring that lens in a little bit closer and the humanity that reveals itself, it was the most moving experience of connectivity, of togetherness. And one of the quotes that one of the protesters shared is, beautiful guy. I'm going to read it to you so I don't get a word wrong. At the end of the day, and he's looking right at you and right at your camera, Mike, at the end of the day, we're human. He's got a family. When he says he's got a family, he nudges his shoulder toward this officer, who then smirks back at him with love, not an angry smirk, love. He says, he's got a family. He's got friends. I've got a family. I've got friends. At the end of the day, we just want to go home to be with people we love. Yeah. When you hear that live and there's a camera rolling, <laughs> Tell, tell me what, you're, what you experience and how you respond. I think I was so satisfied that those demonstrators were articulating what I had seen. Because when you interview someone, you're not sure how they're going to react to it. And he, he and she, we interviewed two of them, uh, were articulating exactly what I saw. Uh, they weren't making this into a political argument. They weren't, they weren't turning this into an us versus them. And that was exactly what I was observing for most of the four days, that this was, this was the law enforcement officials who were doing their jobs, and this was the demonstrators who were having their say. But they, that doesn't mean they hate each other. That doesn't mean that they have disdain for each other. That doesn't mean that they don't understand where the other person is coming from. And I thought that was, um, and, and to take it a step further, what you saw there was what I believe when people talk about, we got to figure this issue out and whatnot. I believe because I grew up in an all white town and I never would have been exposed to the African-American community and different races had I not gotten into this profession, which was not by design. It was, you know, it was just happenstance like everybody. But the only way that you can make progress isn't from money and isn't from legislation. It is from those moments when the white cop is standing next to the African-American that they just arrested and they're talking. I, I don't believe there's any other way to do it except to spend time together and to find out that our cultures are, you know, they're, they're different, but it doesn't mean they can't be respected. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, I might not understand exactly how you grew up or you, how I grew up, 
but that doesn't mean that we can't connect and that we can't uh, appreciate each other. And um, th that, that was my takeaway from the whole thing is it, if you want this to change, it, it's not about, um, it, it's not about we got to throw a bunch of money at social justice. That has very little to do with it. It's a knee jerk reaction. It's not about, well, we got to pass a bill. Uh, either when you're in suburban, as I live now in suburban uh, America, you can make a choice to go to uh, a Baptist church in South Minneapolis that's predominantly African American, not just wants to see it as a game or a show, but to really understand who they are. You can go to North Minneapolis and eat at a restaurant or shop at a grocery store and see how they act. There, there's a Lake Street is a, a place here in, 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 in a focal point in South Minneapolis. And, and there was a, a, a grocery store and the man is of Mexican descent. He's lived there for 22 years. And he thought his American dream could get burned down at that time. And you walk in there and you realize this guy is living the same dream that I am. He wants what's best for his family. Uh, he wants to make a living. This is everything to him. This grocery store is everything to him. And of course he's going to defend it because he has fought so hard for the same dream that I have. He just sees it differently. And when you see that up close, and I had the advantage of seeing it up close, it changes. But until the two communities choose to come together and socialize and, and, and be neighbors and be friends and be, you know, sports does some of this, it, it brings them together. But until they, they intention, get really intentional for a long period of time about hanging out together, I, I think it's a tough road to hold because I think everything else is a Band-Aid that you put out there and it has no long-term effect. Mike, you saw over the course of four nights and really over the course of a career, the best and worst of humanity on display on both sides of a line, by the way. So that I, I think there were bad actors on both sides of the line without question. As you look forward, are you, are you more optimistic than you were several weeks ago? Are you optimistic that this reunion, that this redemption, that this transformation can indeed take place and it can, it can start in, in Minnesota and, and spread out from there? I, it's a really good question that I've asked myself an awful lot over the last uh, couple of weeks, and, and I wish I had a good answer to Here's the reason that I am pessimistic, and I'll give you the reason that I'm optimistic. I'm pessimistic because to sustain it, I believe that human nature is that we, we want to believe that, okay, we got through that, now we move on and we go back to normal, whatever normal is to us. And to do it, and John, you're very familiar with this in, in your presentations, I know, yeah, leave your comfort zone. And you got to do it consistently to grow. And leaving your comfort zone means you're going to have to go shake hands with and introduce yourself to people that you never dreamed of in your life. And you're going to have to connect with those people. And I don't know that we can sustain that because I believe there's a part of us that wants to say, okay, uh, the next step is we rebuild the buildings that were looted and burned. And therefore, once those are back up and running, then uh, we worry about the economy again, and we hope the coronavirus is gone, and uh, we try to get back to where we were. Um, I, that, that's not going to work here in Minnesota. There, there, there's, there's so much anger and distrust um, that has always been there uh, underneath the surface here. In Minnesota, I don't know how it's perceived nationally now. Obviously, I do, but uh, it's always been this kind of right underneath the surface where you feel, uh, I hear it time and time again from the minority community, you feel welcome and people are nice, but you don't feel completely accepted you don't feel you feel like there's always been there's always a division and as i watch that i can see that the reason that i'm optimistic is because everything is now on the table people have said their piece they have said how they feel about the police officers they have gotten brutally honest about the way that they feel about that and and the other reason is i went to a there was a faith march that, that happened a few uh, days after this and it was all denominations. It, it was Jewish, Christian, uh, Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, everybody that wanted to, the leaders of churches could, could show up. And I had three different African, female African-American ministers come up to me, I was just covering it, and say, we watched you over the weekend covering the riots, and at our house we were praying for you. Mm. And that had happened three times from three different African-American female pastors. Now, I, I say that because our worlds have probably been about as different growing up in small town, Minnesota, as and where they grew up. It, it, you know, you probably couldn't be much different, except that we are bonded by our faith. And that trumps everything in this case. 
and 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 therefore when they they reached out and came to me and said that I said you know there's some hope here there's some as different as we are we can connect lots of people can connect I just don't know if there's enough people that will leave their comfort zone and expand the energy that it takes to do that Here's hoping and praying that those who are listening to your voice right now become part of those who say, you know what, I'm in. Um, I'm in, yeah. And there's lots of ways to get in, you know? Oh, man. So my wife and I have been involved with Big Brothers Big Sisters for more than a dozen years. Yep. And I, it's, it's an example of one way to leave your comfort zone, become brothers with someone that you may not ever meet otherwise, become part of a family you may not be in part of otherwise. And in doing so, not only are you changed for the better, and I mean for the way better, so are they. It, it, yeah. It's wonderful win to win. And you mentioned it earlier. You're not sure if it's legislative. Uh, I won't comment on that right now, but I, I'll tell you this. I think it takes place one by one by one. And that's indeed how the world has always been changed for the better. Yeah, and, and it has to be us. We can't rely on somebody else to do it for us. Or to, you know, to even give us the template or the platform, if you're sitting, going to sit and wait for that, you're never going to arrive at it. But if you just say, Okay, I'm going to do, this is what I've done in my, we're now doing a series of television interviews where I'm interviewing different African-American leaders about you know, how they see it and people from the sports world that tie in. Every day I try to commit myself to making a connection to that community, even though I've been involved in it for a long time, but being real intentional about it. Whether I stop at a grocery store that was ravaged or looted by it and just go in and buy my pastry there or whatever, I'm trying to be incredibly intentional about it. Because if not, then all I did was blow smoke too and say, Here, you know, here's what we got to do. Oh, I'm out of here. I don't want to be that person. And, 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 and I'm going to do that just for my life. And I'm going to try to expose my children to that life. I've taken them to where you know, these places have been uh, and try to get them to, to understand and connect. And so I figured if I can do that, anybody can do that. Because these aren't things that cost money. These aren't things that are, that are even difficult. You just have to be willing to do it and to an extent leave your comfort zone a little bit. On both sides. Mike, you were the number one trending name on Twitter for four days. Uh, and then eventually you left that place on the street and you returned to this seat where you talk not only about society, but about sports now. Do you have any interest now, though, in pivoting back and saying, you know what, I'll come back to basketball, I'll come back to baseball at some later day, but I, I realize I might have a calling to be uh, in a different seat in the media. You understand that uh, to, to a great level, John, because I know part of your presentation is, you know, pay attention to your calling, right? I mean, what is your calling? What is your purpose in life? And, and I'm, I'm a big believer that you don't have to chase that, that if you just, if you try to live an intentional life and do the right thing, it will come to you and it will tell you what it is that you're supposed to be doing. If, if you pay attention, if your head's up, it, it, um, I, I am incredibly fortunate that I can take the two sports and what's happened here and, and I can tie it together. And I also have great freedom uh, because of my bosses to uh, explore other opportunities. In my radio show, I can talk about other topics. It doesn't have to just be sports. Uh, and in TV, I can pitch a story anytime that I want. It doesn't have to be sports. Uh, so to answer your question, I'm allowing a higher power to kind of lead me that way. And you know, we don't have a lot of sports to cover right now. Um, so there is a lot of room to do these things. So I'm listening and I'm listening closely. And if, uh, if that would ever be the case, but I also, you know, because of the platforms that I have right now in sports broadcasting, I don't want to leave those because they may be the most effective way that I can also do this. Yeah. Mike, it's a remarkable story. And, and we thank you for not only reporting on it. I think that's candidly the easier job, but it for is. What, what, what sets you up for, for a wildly meaningful four days was the work that you'd been doing for the 34 years leading up to it. The relationships built on trust and love and respect mutually, not one or the other way, but mutually. It, it sets you up to have an honest conversation with those in the streets on both sides of, the, of a very divisive topic. And then to reveal to us ultimately how we resolve this is to come together. It is indeed to come together. So Mike, I, I want to thank you for living it. I also want to take us now from your story into the, what we call the Live Inspired Seven. There's seven questions that tether every one of our guests together. So the very first question, this one asked of Mike Max. Uh, his name on media is frequently Maxie, as I've heard it again and again and again. So Maxie, what's the best book you've ever read? Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive by Harvey McKay. Harvey's a good friend of mine. He's a, a boy. Teacher. 
he and he and I are, are very close friends. And when I read it, it uh, maybe it was the time in my life when I read it. Uh, but there were a lot of things in there that I said, oh, my gosh, I never would have thought this. And now I know this about how to prepare yourself for the rest of your life. And so that has been uh, one of the templates and, and, and in part because I'm, I'm very close to Harvey, uh, but it, it, it is one of those things. And I like quick reads. I, 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 I don't <laughs> I don't like where I have to involve myself. I like when I can just read three pages if I've only got time to read three pages. And so Swim with the Sharks is my favorite. When you see Harvey, tell him I said hello. I will. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy in a small town in southern Minnesota that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I, I cared more about people when I was younger. I've got more transactional when I got in the business world. And I don't know if this is one that I, I, this is a really good question that you'll understand well. I trusted much more when I was a kid. I don't trust as much now because you get burned a few times. And I'm not so sure that you're still not better off trusting and getting burned than you are not trusting going in. And I was a much more trusting person for better or worse as a kid. Yeah, right. Thank you. If your home caught fire and, and your wife, your children, your pets are all out safely, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one thing you would grab, Mike? Well, uh, the, obviously, the, <laughs> the phone is the one thing none of us can live with right now, our cell phone, right? With all the contacts and everything that sits in there uh, uh, that we need. Above and beyond that, it would be the pictures of my family. Not This was for those that didn't grow up in our era, John. There was a time when we'd physically take pictures and we'd have them develop. And, and the memories of my parents and, 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 and my brothers that, that I grew up with and, and, and the high school kids that I grew up with, because every once in a while I like to revisit them and remember where I came from and how lucky I am. Mm. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach, or in your case, maybe a mountain range, and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you love to be seated right next to? Yeah, two two uh, categories. One is any president. Because I'd love to know what it feels like, uh, forget your politics, of what, what it's like to live 24-7 as the most powerful man in the world. And, and, and how do you sleep? How do you sleep when you, you know things that we don't know? And then you're running for office and, and the strategy that has to go into winning an election and then trying to move a country forward. I would love to know how your brain works and how you can possibly stay mentally healthy through all of that. Uh, with everything that's on your mind and you're trying to raise a family. I've always been fascinated by that question for whatever person. The other person that I would love to sit with would be Johnny Carson, hmm. if he was still alive. I just I found him to be, uh, in his era, incredibly fascinating um, for whatever reason. Uh, he's a small-town guy maybe from, from Nebraska that came out, uh, obviously, to Hollywood. Uh, but I've always found him to, that, that there's a, a, a mysterious side to him that I don't know. And there's a side that I do know. And, and I just love to hear how he really felt about his life and what he accomplished. What's the best advice that you've ever received, whether it came from a former president or from Johnny Carson himself or anybody else? Uh, my easy. My dad said hard work always pays off. So don't worry about whether it's going to pay off because it's going to pay off. You just don't know when. It might not be on your terms. But hard work always pays off. So if you have hard work and you have faith that it will pay off, that has paid dividends my entire life. And that has always been uh, his golden rule for us as kids. And that has been what I have lived by, that when in doubt, work hard. When, when, you're, when you're questioning yourself, go work hard. And don't worry about the results. Just work hard. You mentioned earlier you bailed a little hay growing up. And I, I did for three summers bailing hay. I have not worked since I stopped bailing hay 24 years ago or whenever it is. There, there's no work like farm work, man. So uh, your father's- No, no. no there's nothing like it. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Uh, I would say, don't get so uptight about things that aren't that important. Don't think that just because today there's a crisis means that it's gonna be a crisis for the rest of your life. Don't overreact to bad situations because they always, always pass. Don't spend so much time making sure that people know that you're right on this issue uh, when that issue is gonna be unimportant by the next day. I've spent way too much time getting caught up in, it's the intensity of my personality, that, that moment, that day, I gotta win. 
and you realize sometimes that in winning you lost the next day because you made an idiot of yourself in trying to defend yourself and don't worry because something looks like it's bad news today because so many times what looks like bad news today turns out to have great purpose and meaning and there's a reason that it happened tomorrow so don't get caught up in all those little things that i have allowed to eat away at me that at the end of the day, when I look back in the rearview mirror, had very little bearing on where I got or how I got there. Man, I have a feeling you're speaking for yourself, but you are having a whole lot of heads nodding up and down. And uh, I wish our dear friends in the media would take the advice you just gave yourself. Because I, I think if we could just slow down a little bit of our loudness. Around There's the a little loudness right now, yep. And I, I don't mean specifically around what you and I are talking about during this conversation, but everything is such a big deal until the next thing shows up. And then that is a far bigger deal. And we focus all of our attention on that until the next wave, the next storm, the next fire, the next thing passes. Yeah, all you got to do is look at the, uh, the elections. You know, how many times did a candidate, you go, oh, that's it, they're done. And now three years later, you go, I barely remember that issue. But that day, it seemed like it might be the end of their career, you know? Well, Mike Max, my friend, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, on my tombstone, I would want it to say, I told you I wasn't feeling that well. No, no, <laughs> no, no. no. I, I would want it to say he gave it his best shot. Whatever that is, that's it. I don't care about results. I don't care about awards. I don't care about whatever, because we're all called the different path in life. I, I, I just want the guy up there and the people that I was wrong a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, but I gave it my best shot based on the information that I had and based on where I was at in life while I was here. That's all I want. Well, Mike, I'm going to quote someone that you interviewed recently. Thank you for reminding us of this truth during the interview. The quote is this, at the end of the day, we're all human. He's got a family, he's got friends, I've got a family, I've got friends. At the end of the day, we just wanna go home to the people we love. Mike, thank you for your courage and humbly and brilliantly and courageously sharing these stories of, uh, of our protesters, of our brothers and sisters, of our police departments, and of the truth that we are better together, man. So thank you for that time. Great spending it with you. It went quickly and I appreciate that very much. My friends, that is Mike Max. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired.